Hello, and welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. My name is Cody Sullivan, and thank you for being with us. These last two weeks since we last met have been a whirlwind of productivity and excitement, and I can't wait to share with you all of the details. To begin with, our very own website is officially up and running, so if you haven't, please head over to pulpfrombeyond.com and let us know what you think. Perhaps even more exciting is something you may have already noticed. This program has crawled out of the primordial soup that is SoundCloud and has begun taking its first steps on new soil. You can now listen to Pulp on your favorite podcast apps such as Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and Spotify. Finally, we've created and launched a Pulp from Beyond the Veil Patreon page to make it easier for you to support our program if you wish to do so. I'll talk about that a little more at the end of the episode, so stick around if you would like to know more. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, this is Pulp. Now let's begin. Allow me to be entirely frank for a moment. I am extremely uncomfortable in the presence of a salesperson. The thin veneer of polite propriety and the feigned interest do a poor job of masking the intention of the salesperson. As friendly as they can be, they're after one thing, your coin. But even greasier than your typical electronics or gadget salesperson is the insurance salesperson. Not only do they deal in speculation of your worst days to come, they can, at times, guilt you into buying something you may never actually use. But, for the young man in our next story, it would behoove him to at least consider taking out a bit of emergency coverage. After all, it would be a shame if something were to happen to him. This story is called Advanced Deaths and Dismemberments. The office itself was unassuming, though one had to be careful not to diminish credibility by leaning too hard into the mundane. Still, it was better than the alternative. Guzma had been into the sort that tripped over itself to appeal to the clientele. Crossed swords on the wall, grisly trophies taken from dubious quarry, most of them played like a cheap theme restaurant. She preferred to keep her space professional, with only the occasional nod to her adventuring days, and thus to the nature of her product. Gildern Gortusk, her assistant, appeared in the mirror on the back of the closed door. Your mid-morning appointment has arrived, my lady. Excellent. Send them in. Guzma prided herself on first impressions, so she stood up, straightened her cravat, and gave her emerald green jacket one last smoothing. She checked her appointment log to make sure the furniture was improperly sized. 
The door opened, and a man, if barely, stepped in. His clothes were piebald and ragged, and he had an old rapier at his waist and a traveling pack on his back. The youth's greasy black hair fell over his acne-marked face from under a pointed leather cap. Guzma tempered her expectations. Welcome, she called out, pleasantly, but not without due reverence for the topic at hand. Durisric, was it? Any honorific after that? No, ma'am. Not yet. Still need to come up with one. No worries, lad. It'll come along. Oh, how silly of me. I had a pair of thirdlings in this morning to up their coverage. With this, she waved a hand imperiously, bowing while she did so. Obeying her gesture, the two wooden chairs opposite her desk quivered for a bit, before making a noise like a popping kernel of corn and doubling in size. The effect of this on the young man was painted garishly on the hilly landscape of his face. Now, Guzma continued, shaking hands and taking a seat. How long have you been in this line of work? Well, ma'am, I'm only just starting. My mother and father reckon I ought to have a backup plan in case, you know, it all goes south. Of course. Wise advice, that. Now, what is your specialty? Ma'am? I see. Do you cast spells? Impart divine justice? Slay monsters? Well, I've been practicing on the locks around the property, and I'm ever so quiet. Studied snares and traps a bit, too, I have. Ah, I see. I'll put you down as a thief, professionally speaking, of course. Now, what level of coverage were you looking for? Oh, nothing much. I don't have a wife or nothing. Just me parents. Though, I would like it if they was taken care of, should anything happen to me. Dursrik, you're not the first person to come into my office having underestimated the extent of the financial loss which can result from death or dismemberment while dungeoning. Have you thought of your medical bills? The lost opportunities? And not to mention, uh, perish the thought, your funeral expenses? Not really, no. They usually don't, especially in the burgling trades. The possibility for maiming or dismemberment is Quite high, indeed. That's why. She stated matter-of-factly, conjuring a complicated-looking chart. Rogues do cost a bit more to insure. Statistically speaking, the risks are quite high, especially early on. (sighs) Well, I don't know about that. That's a lot of coin. It seems like it now, young man, but your living, not to mention dying, expenses are a good deal more than this. If a fireball trap were to melt your limbs off, do you think you'd be better off begging on some street corner or collecting an insurance payout? And make no mistake, that very situation has absolutely arisen with my clients. Ernstag, the unlimbed, however, is happily retired in her comfortable country estate because she thought about the worst before it happened. If you think 15 gold a month is a lot of money, imagine a lump sum of 3,000. Money like that can be reinvested to make itself. In fact, most of my clients find it worth their while to up their coverage as they become more prosperous, simply because they barely notice the expense but have become accustomed to a certain standard of living. Tell me, Dursrik, 
Why do you do what you do? I don't know, ma'am. The adventure, I guess. People who crave adventure, surf or hang glide. You pick locks to get into cursed vaults and hunt monsters in the bowels of the world. I'll ask again. Why do you do it? Well, there's the money. Exactly. And just because you want to get rich quick, and trust me, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, doesn't mean you have to be foolish about it. Tell me, Derswick, do you have any prospects lined up? Do you have a band put together? Any hot leads? Well, yeah, me and a couple of my mates. We're pretty good, I reckon. Gortrud even casts an honest-to-goodness spell that she learned out of a book in her attic. And we heard tell there's loads of tunnels dug under the old Dodgemore estate that might have an old pirate treasure hidden in them. Charming. Guzma drawled lazily, beginning to become both bored and doubtful that she was going to sell a plan. You can, of course, do what you like. But if those tunnels have dogmen living in them, do you really want to risk your hand to a chopper or a spinning blade trap and have nothing at all to show for it if you lose the thing? What's 15 gold a month when weighed against your well-being, not to mention that of your family? Gee, I don't know. It's just that's a lot for me right now. Listen. Guzma said, putting on her most politely concerned tone, even though she was already certain she had lost the sale. I hear what you're saying. Believe it or not, I was a broke fledgling sorcerer poking around goblin caves for coppers once. But the time to have insurance isn't when you've got a mountain of gold in a pocket dimension guarded by demons. It's when a botched job could mean you don't eat next week. It's when there's a real risk of your folks deciding they'd rather not care for their broken son until he shits himself to death in utter obscurity. She saw that she had pushed the kid away, and he was trembling as he stood up. Listen, ma'am, I'll keep you in mind. We'll see how Dodgemore goes. I mean, honestly, my mom's been looking for somebody to take over the weaving business anyway. Adventure might not be for me. At least take my card. Guzma shrugged with a parental tone and matching smile. She flicked a business card into the air and guided it with flicks of her wrist into the boy's breast pocket. Just in case. No sooner had the sorcerer salesperson heard the outer door shut than she had Gildern on the mirror. No sale for him, Gortusk. Get Gunthar the godless on the glass, will you? The green, toothy face of Guzma's assistant gave way to a swirling vortex of glistening blue and silver. After a moment, an emaciated creature whose eyes were covered in gauze appeared. Gunthar! Guzma here! To what do I owe the pleasure? rasped the face on the other end of the mirror, which was bobbing steadily. I have you on my compact. I'm looking into a newly desecrated cemetery. Good, good. That's just the sort of thing I need to speak to you about. Do you know where Dodgemoor Manor is? The sallow face nodded. Well, I was wondering if you might get a hoard of your little pets there. Maybe even a white, if you could spare one. The standard financial arrangement would, of course, apply. Yes. <laughs> Gonthar chuckled, 
and it was not a pleasant sound. That is easily done. What are the particulars? There's a young man, long, greasy black hair, and a nasty pimply face. Fancies himself a burglar. Anyway, he didn't seem to think insurance was necessary in his line of work. I'd like for his friends to know better. There's a business card in his breast pocket, but just to be sure, have your big bad slip one somewhere it'll be found. Thanks. With that, Guzma waved her hand and dismissed the image, put her feet on her desk, and poured herself a generous glass of brandy from the bottle in her bottom drawer. She marveled while she drank, as she often did, at how well her old career of breaking and entering coercion and violence had prepared her for life in the insurance racket. There are times, I think, when in the bowels of our minds we entertain morbid notions of survival scenarios. These often manifest as natural events, fires, hurricanes, burglars breaking in. But one macabre fantasy shared by many is the ponderings of what you'd do in the event of an undead outbreak. Movies like Night of the Living Dead and World War Z captured our imaginations. And odds are, you or someone you know is either secretly or openly prepared for such an outbreak. When a host of living corpses are at your door, what do you think you'd do? Would you run, hide, and do what you must to survive? Or would you stand and deliver? Arm yourself and take on the zombie horde. Subject for your observation, a young man named Reese who finds himself cast into a major role saving the world, whether he likes it or not. Will he find the courage to stare down evil and end the undead scourge, or will he falter and succumb to fear? Stay tuned to find out. This story is called The Tale of the Dead. No, 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 please, 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 don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me. Get up. I'm not gonna hurt you. Just get up. Reese rubbed the water from his eyes and opened them. From where he was under the desk, he could see a sleek pair of women's boots and an orange sunset seeping in from the windows. Remembering he'd finally laid down for some rest sometime in the early morning, it was becoming evident he'd slept all day. If I come out, promise you're not going to hurt me. Even better. I'm going to save you. My name is Amanda. Now get up and be quiet. They're going to hear us if you scream like that again. Reese poked his head out from under the desk, and Amanda saw the man's curly brown hair was fussed and unwashed. She reached out her hand and helped the man to his feet. His tall frame rose above her own, but he was slender. He clutched a journal in his hand, adding to his bookish appearance. Come on, this way. Follow me. Okay. Is it, is it safe? 
no, not particularly. So don't look down and don't look at them. Amanda led the way through the second floor hallway of the empty home. Pictures were hanging on the walls, and some had fallen off their nails and shattered on the floor. The house appeared nearly normal, but for the few objects strewn about, broken pictures, and the boarded-up first-floor door and windows. Nice place. It's not yours, though, is it? No, it's, it's not. I'm just house-sitting for my aunt. She's in St. Croix with the family. St. Croix, huh? Good for them. They're probably a hell of a lot safer on an island than the mainland. Okay, this is us here. I'll go first. Wait for me to give you a hand up. The pair stood in front of an open window. From outside, a fetid breeze wafted into the room, stealing warmth and what remained of Reese's sense of well-being. The sun was fading below the tree line, emblazoning the sky with pink and orange incandescence. More noticeable than the sunset was the moving stream of corpses and half-rotted skeletons on the road. There were so many that they obscured the road entirely. They ran through each other, climbing up and over the corpse in front of them, all jockeying to be in the front of this ghastly caravan of the dead. The torrent of corpses began at the double doors of the abandoned church, all the way at the end of the street. And high in the bell tower, there was an eerie green glow. It would have been impossible to guess their numbers, but it seemed like hundreds, maybe thousands. Are you serious? You want to get up on the roof? Why? So when we fall off, we'll hopefully die from impact? Man, you scare easy. Watch me. Reese watched as Amanda climbed onto the windowsill and sprung upwards, leaving her feet dangling behind for a moment before they too slipped upwards and out of view. A moment later, her hand appeared in view. All right, stranger, time to go. You can't stay locked in here forever. As soon as Reese grabbed her hand, Amanda pulled him upwards until his free hand caught the edge of the roof. Uh, here, take my journal first. Okay. Um, by the way, my name is Reese, and, and you should have left me sleeping. With her help, he was quickly able to make it up onto the sloped rooftop. Once there, Reese was able to see the neighbor's roof was level to his aunt's. That's where we're going. The houses were nestled close together, and it was no more than a four or five foot leap to the neighbor's roof. After some prodding from Amanda from the other side, Reese managed to make the leap himself. Immediately upon entering the home, Reese was greeted by the warm, inviting scent of food, the intoxicating aroma of roast chicken, baked potatoes, apple pie, and mulled wine made his mouth drool and his stomach ache. Come on now, grab a plate. Let's have ourselves a feast. The pair of strangers sat at a long wooden dining table adorned with candles, bowls of fruit, and the delicious foods Reese had smelled when they first entered the home. While they ate, they shared stories about where they were three days ago when this undead nightmare began. I saw people being yanked out of their cars and torn apart. And that was when I decided to seal up the first floor and sleep upstairs. All the bedrooms are on the first floor, so I just 
nestled up under my aunt's desk and hoped help would arrive soon. You probably should have locked the basement too. I have a suspicion that the undead are burrowing their way to the cemetery behind the church. I've seen them. They crawl out of the ground, slowly, enter the church through the back, and somehow come running and screaming out the front. Yikes! What's the deal with that book you're writing anyways? The Tale of the Dead? Well, I'm, I'm no Hemingway. But I think if we survive this, then it's a tale worth being told. Working on a book kind of gives me hope. It's stupid, I know. I don't think it's stupid at all. We're going to survive this because we're going to put an end to this. And how do you propose we do that? I'm glad you asked. Amanda laid out her plan, which involved using the town sewer to access the church's basement. This area used to flood a lot, and so a lot of old houses in town have basements with built-in drains, like this one. The church has a manhole in the basement for draining flood water. I've been there once before when their septic tank ruptured. You work for a septic company? Yep. Shit. You said it. The pair would enter the sewers from the basement, travel a mile or so underground, and emerge in the basement of the church. From there, they'd make their way to the tower to the source of the green light. There, they'd confront whatever evil lay within and destroy it, thus saving the world. We don't even know what's up there. How do you propose stopping something which you don't understand? Any more questions? A shotgun, really? It's worth a try, right? The sewers are going to be dark, so I'll need to lead the way. Be smart, because we only have one shell for this thing. Here, catch. Jesus! Well, don't drop it. <sighs> Fuck. Not bothering to clean up after their feast, the pair were soon in the basement ready to get things underway. Amanda with a flashlight and a cigarette, and Reese with a shotgun and his leather journal stuffed into the back pocket of his jeans. They both lifted the heavy metal grate that served as a drain, and Reese was comforted to find there was at least a ladder that would make the climb into the sewers much easier. They walked in silence for a while. Reese was wondering how he ended up mixed up in this mess and why he was holding a gun for the first time, and if he was going to have to use it. Shh. Hear that? Shit, I don't like this. Didn't you say you saw these things burrowing? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Suddenly, from behind Amanda, two half-rotted arms broke through the metal pipe. It grabbed for her and caught her in a tight embrace as it yanked her backwards against the wall. The flashlight flew out of her hands and rolled a few inches away from Reese's feet. Reese, go! Run! Reese stood frozen in horror as he watched the arms pulling Amanda against the metal pipe with unnatural strength. Blood began to spurt from her mouth as her eyes bulged. He raised the shotgun at the arms, but didn't have a clear shot. Reese, don't. Just go, please. Reese picked up the flashlight and ran as fast as he could. The church was only a mile or so away, so he knew he must be close. He felt dissociated, like he was running on autopilot. His wide eyes stared unblinking as he sprinted ahead. Amanda. 
She was gone. He wanted to cry, but could not. All he could do was keep running. Finally, he stood before a ladder leading up to a manhole cover. He scaled the ladder in a flash, and his muscles cramped and ached as he pushed the manhole cover with his back up into the side. As soon as he did, his ears were filled with the lamentations of the dead coming from the floor above. Reese climbed the first staircase that led out of the basement, discarding the flashlight on the first floor. From the basement door to his left, he saw a vicious stream of undead flowing from the cemetery side doors all the way out to the front double doors. The corpses from the cemetery seemed to stagger into the church, but upon entering, became wild and frenzied, eyes burning green, and began running over one another on their way out to the front. As luck would have it, the next set of stairs stood directly in front of Reese, only ten feet or so into the room. As far as he could tell, there would be another staircase at the top of this one that would lead to the bell tower. He gathered himself for only a moment before sprinting into the room and up the stairs. When he got to the top, he could see he had one more floor to go, and that he was now standing on the mezzanine above the ground floor pews and altar. There was a man lying on the ground in a pool of blood. Reese rushed over to him and turned him over, but retched violently when he saw the decomposing, bloated face. The eyes were missing, but the body wore an ID card on a lanyard around his neck. It read, Douglas J. Winters, Professor of Archaeology, Dartmouth College. Reese searched the dead man's pockets and found nothing of use. Only a wallet, a dead phone, and a key ring. Reese left the dead man and took to the last staircase, which spiraled up as he climbed up the bell tower. Taking two steps at a time, he saw the vile green glow begin to appear more and more prominent as he neared the finish. He had just rounded the corner at the top when what he saw froze him in his place. There, in front of the church bell, standing behind a podium, was a towering specter adorned in wispy green glowing rags. The limbs were unnaturally long and frail, and the head was completely shrouded by a pale green hood. Upon the podium was set an open book, crumbling and worn, and upon its pages was what appeared to be a large token made of bone. It looked equal parts a chess piece and a sculpture of a wraith. A nameless horror with flowing white robes of ivory. Reese slowly raised the shotgun level with the monster and took a step into the room. The unholy creature cocked its head and noticed him, gliding around and in front of the book, token, and podium. All right, buddy. D don't move a muscle. Jesus Christ! The fool is dead. This temple mine and the world to burn.
Get back, or so help me God, I'll blast you with this! The pitiful tools of men cannot harm me. I am ethereal. I am old. I am death. He brought the book, and even now it frees me from my talisman. Soon you'll join us, and we'll find rapture in the revelation. Beyond death, there is no fear. Hear me, mortal. Tell me what you're fearing. The shotgun blast had hit the spirit in the chest and merely gone through, but to Reese's surprise, the token that stood on the book behind the wraith was shattered into pieces. Relief washed over Reese when he realized that, for the first time in days, there was silence. No screams. No moans. No more dead cries. He walked over to the podium and noticed the broken token was oozing black ichor that smelled of rot and blood. He stared blankly at it for what seemed like an eternity, before sweeping the musty book and shattered token onto the floor. From his back pocket, he drew his journal and spread it open upon the podium. He fished out a pen from his pocket, flipped through the chapters, and stared at the blank page before him. After some time, he began to write. The Tale of the Dead. Final chapter. Amanda. She saved me. She saved us all. Beyond the Veil will be right back after this short commercial break from our ongoing sponsor, The Ghastly Gourmet. Hello, pulp listeners. I hope today's episode didn't rob you of your appetite, because a very special day will soon be upon us. Yes, that's right. Valentine's Day is just around the corner. If that statement scares you, knowing that you haven't yet found some fancy restaurant to make reservations for you and your sweetheart, have no fear. The Ghastly Gourmet is here. The Ghastly Gourmet is a mail-order meal service that brings you the highest quality ingredients, recipes from actual chefs, and meals to die for. All while pandering to your love of all things gothic and wicked. The Ghastly Gourmet is offering a limited-time Valentine's Day box filled with everything you need for a four-course meal with your favorite ghoul or ghoulet. These tasty creations will have your fangs dripping with anticipation. Sink your teeth into these fine creations. Start the meal off light and right with a cup of Southwestern tortilla soup with spicy black beans and squid ink. This soup is so dark you might as well be dipping your spoon into the abyss, and it's guaranteed to blacken your lips 
and satisfy your taste buds. Drop your spoons and grab your forks because we're moving on to the next course. Crimson beet greens, stacked high and peppered with crumbled Vermont goat cheese, cracked black pepper, extra virgin olive oil, and dark balsamic reduction. But what's that crouton, you say? I'm glad you asked, because this dish is elevated by crispy fried porkskin croutons. Eat your heart out, Ed Gein. Satiate your need for youthful flesh with this decadent entree. Braised crown of lamb wrapped tightly with salt-cured veal bacon, rich and rare, served with purple fingerling potatoes and, of course, whole roasted baby carrots. This dish will appease even the stuffiest of sociopaths and is a sure way to show your significant other you care. Cleanse the mind and palate with dessert. Devil's food cake with generous scoops of French vanilla ice cream, pomegranate seeds, even Persephone would pine for, and a richly reduced Bordeaux syrup on top. The best part about this Valentine's box is the low, low price. Every box from Ghastly Gourmet costs the exact same. A cool $66.06. A fraction of what you might pay at your local sit-down joint. However, Pulp has gotten a special discount for our listeners. Use the promo code VEIL, that's V-E-I-L, to receive free shipping on your first order. Perfect for trying this special Valentine's box. So never worry about your lack of last-minute dinner plans. Let Ghastly Gourmet do the dirty work. Go to www.ghastlygourmet.com today to get started. So let the camp counselors of Crystal Lake be the ones you watch die this Valentine's Day and not your relationship. Ghastly Gourmet, love at first bite. Thus, we have arrived at the end of our program. We hope you enjoyed what we've put together for you. But before you get out of here, I want to take a moment to tell you about my friend and pulp contributor Chris Goulet's podcast called Shiny Podcast. It's a program centered primarily around technology and gaming trends, and it's hosted by Chris Goulet and Colin Moon. I had the pleasure of being interviewed about pulp on their latest episode, which aired yesterday. You can hear me talk about the origin of pulp as well as what vision I have for the future of the program. So if you're a fan of Pulp and are looking for something new to listen to, episode 37 of Shiny Podcast is a good place to start. Head over to their website, shinypodcast.com, and give them a listen. A special shout-out to all this episode's amazing contributors, Advanced Death and Dismemberments was written by Gustav Grift and performed by Jamie Danner, Jason Beaton, and Cody Sullivan. The Tale of the Dead 
was written by C.A. Sullivan and performed by Chris Goulet, Grace Newbold, and Cody Sullivan. Artwork for today's episode was done by the talented David Howard. This episode was produced by Cody Sullivan and co-produced by Zachary Husband. Finally, while I still have your ear, I want to talk about our Patreon page and how you can support our little show. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform where you can make one-time donations or a monthly pledge to help creators with small budgets and big dreams continue creating content. While Pulp will always be free to listen to, please consider donating to the program to help us both pay for hosting as well as expand the brand with merchandise and better equipment. Patrons of the show will also unlock exclusive bonus content, such as access to outtakes and PDFs of your favorite stories, some so grisly we haven't even recorded them yet. And every dollar that you give will help us expand this small program into something special. You listeners are truly the engine that drives this program. Find our Patreon on our website, pulpfrombeyond.com, or access it directly at patreon.com slash pulpfrombeyond. We'd truly appreciate it. That's all for this week, and as the sun sets on our time together and darkness falls, take comfort in knowing that you'll be hearing from us soon. Until then... Stay spooky. I'm Cody Sullivan, signing off.